We pray. We pray, Lord, sanctify us by your truth. Your word is truth. Dear Lord, please send your Holy Spirit to us this morning as we study your word. Please use your word to strengthen us and encourage us in our faith and equip us for lives of Christian service. Bless our time digging into your word this morning, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, our sermon text for this morning comes from Matthew chapter 20, verse 20 through 28. We read, Then the mother of Zebedee's sons came to Jesus with her sons, and kneeling down, asked a favor of him. What is it you want, he asked. She said, Grant that one of these two sons of mine may sit at your right and the other at your left in your kingdom. You don't know what you are asking, Jesus said to them. Can you drink the cup I'm going to drink? We can, they answered. Jesus said to them, You will indeed drink from my cup, but to sit at my right or left is not for me to grant. These places belong to those for whom they have been prepared by my Father. When the ten heard about this, they were indignant with the two brothers. Jesus called them together and said, You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their high officials exercise authority over them. Not so with you. Instead, whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give his life as a ransom for many. This is the word of our God. If you were to make a list of the disciples' finest moments, this would not be on that list. (laughs) Um, In fact, if you were to compile a list of the disciples' worst and most embarrassing moments, this might actually be on that list, because consider the context of our sermon text today, which we haven't set yet, so we'll set it now. This happened at a very crucial point in Jesus' life. After three years of public ministry, he is finally going up to Jerusalem for the Passover festival, and this is going to be it. This is going to be the Passover festival where he dies. Shortly after our sermon text, what's going to happen to Jesus is the thing that he has predicted right before these verses. So the verses we didn't read right before this, Jesus said, here is what's going to happen to me. He explained the Jewish leaders were going to arrest him and hand him over to the Gentiles to be mocked and flogged and crucified. Three days later, he would rise from the dead. And then 40 days after that, he would ascend into heaven, leaving his disciples here on earth with the task of making disciples of all nations and, and building the church on earth. So for Jesus, it's, it's go time. Like, this is it. This, he has two weeks left until his crucifixion, and, and after that, very soon, he's going to be gone from the earth. So at this key point, right at the end of Jesus' ministry, you would think he's got to be asking himself, have I taught my disciples everything? You know, I hope so. Have I equipped my disciples as well as I can equip them to carry on my work? I hope so, because my time is running out. And yet, as they approach Jerusalem for the last few days of Jesus' life before he dies on the cross, what do we find James and John doing? Well, they've sent their mom to ask Jesus if the two of them can have special chairs in heaven. And the other ten disciples are enraged 
by this idea that James and John are better than everybody else. And so there's this huge blow-up fight, and all of them are now arguing, having this huge discussion about which of them is going to be the greatest. There are times in Jesus' ministry, there's a lot of times in Jesus' ministry, where I wonder what he must have been thinking. And at this point, I can only imagine his frustration. Like, are you kidding me? I am weeks away. I've been doing this for 33 years, but I am literally weeks away from dying on the cross and rising and going into heaven, and I'm going to leave the church on earth in the hands of these particular clowns. Like, are you kidding me? Is what I imagine Jesus thinking. Uh, But that's not what Jesus said. Instead, Jesus called his disciples together, and you picture him like sitting them down, just find a nice spot. James and John, just stop. Please sit. And Jesus lovingly, carefully explains to them one more time, this is not how the kingdom of God works. It's not about you. It's about others. It's not about making sure that you come in first. It's about being willing to put yourself last. Jesus has been talking about this attitude of humility and modeling this attitude of humility every day for the past three years, really for the past 33 years of his whole life. And Jesus is going to continue talking about this humility and modeling this humility right up to the point where he, the Son of God, does the ultimate act of humbling himself and he allows himself to get nailed to a cross for the sake of mortal human beings. And yet here are his disciples arguing about who is the greatest. And and so we read this story, I read this story, and we say, come on, you guys. But Jesus is much more gentle and patient than we are. And, and as he teaches his disciples and as he teaches us through these words, the first thing he does is he acknowledges that the me first way that they are thinking was in fact the accepted cultural norm in their world. Jesus called them together. This is the first thing he says. You know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their high officials exercise authority over them, but not so with you. So I don't know to what degree you all are like connoisseurs of history and Greek and Roman culture. Uh, In case you're not, you might not know that social standing was incredibly important in in Greek and Roman culture. And so I was trying to think back through what would be a comparison. Is it like the old, old South? Is there something else where like you are in your position and other people are in their position and there is just no crossing those lines? But in ancient Rome, everybody knew the levels of the hierarchy in their society. Everybody knew if you came from a patrician family, it was called, or a plebeian family. And everybody knew if you were a Roman citizen or if you were a mere provincial, was the term. And everybody knew if you were a freedman or if you were a slave. And unlike in our culture, there was no overlap. There were no cool plot lines about breaking barriers and crossing lines. And there were no Romeo and Juliet and love stories across the the divisions of culture where it doesn't matter what group you're in because you love each other. And and there was no, we're not going to judge you based on where you are in society, but we're going to judge you based on the content of your character. We're so familiar with these themes in the modern day West, but this was not the ancient the ancient West, I guess, the ancient Roman society. Everybody knew what level you belonged to. 
and you did not dream of stepping outside your level and either going up or going down to connect to somebody else. Maybe you would compare it to like the caste system in India, something a little more modern, but you just did not cross those cultural barriers. It simply wasn't done. So we don't want to excuse Jesus' disciples for their ridiculous uh, self-centeredness that they're constantly struggling with, but we do need to understand that this is how their world was set up. And in this kind of a world, the concept that Jesus was proposing was tremendously countercultural. When he would say something like this, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant, and whoever wants to be first must be your slave. In the Greek and Roman world, that sounded like crazy talk. But Jesus didn't just talk it, he lived it. Because here he is, the Son of God, the long-awaited Messiah, the King of Heaven, having come down to earth, and he chooses to be born to poor parents in a stable. And he chooses to be raised in this tiny little village of Nazareth. And he conducts his whole ministry as a homeless, traveling teacher with virtually no physical resources to speak of. And as we've said shortly after this text, he's going to allow weak, mortal human beings to arrest him and mock him and flog him and crucify him, killing him in the most painful way that they know how. And the idea that the Almighty God would allow these things to happen to him for the sake of lifting up and rescuing mortal human beings, the idea that a God would do that for people was absurd. It was impossible. It was crazy to the Greek and Roman mind. And that's why Paul wrote in a different letter, he said, the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. And so Paul and Jesus' other disciples, by God's grace and by Jesus' power, they did finally get it. And, you know, we read about some of the disciples' reactions and we're just like, how are these guys going to run the church after Jesus leaves? But after his resurrection, some things changed. When Jesus rose from the dead, his disciples recognized what had finally happened, that the Son of Man had not come to be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. In other words, Jesus' suffering and humiliation and even his death, these were not signs of weakness. They were actually signs of strength. They were features of a weapon so powerful that it was able to conquer all of our spiritual enemies, sin, death, and the devil, in one blow. And that almighty weapon that Jesus used was the weapon of love. Pure, self-sacrificing, unconditional love. And through that perfect love that Jesus brought to the world, while appearing to lose, he was actually winning. While experiencing condemnation, he was bringing for us forgiveness. And while experiencing death, Jesus was giving to us eternal life. But as it turns out, Jesus' kingdom is not like this world's kingdoms. His hierarchy is all upside down. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Countercultural, yes, but beautiful and eternally life saving for us. 
But what about, what about us and what about today? I think as we're talking about the context of these verses, the Greek and Roman world, I think right away one of the first things that occurs to us is, well, our world is pretty different. Right? We don't live in this kind of a hierarchical society with these clear-cut lines where you stay in your place and you don't mingle with others. In modern-day America, we pride ourselves on equity and democracy and the assurance that nobody's going to be treated differently on the basis of race or gender or family or birthright or money or anything so shallow. In modern-day America, everyone is equal. Allegedly. Supposedly, this is at least the plan. Uh, whether or not things actually are equitable and fair and equal is, I think, a discussion for a different time. But just because we're equal or we think we are equal and we're trying to do away with barriers between each other, it doesn't mean that we're excited to serve each other and to put ourselves last so that others can go first. It may not be in the different uh, levels of society area, but in other areas, our world is actually very similar to the Greek and Roman world. And it's similar because we live in a society also that runs on conquering and dominating and achieving to get ahead of your opponent. This is how our world works. It's how the business world works, right? You want to be the first one to come up with the new idea. You want to be the first one to distinguish yourself from the rest of the team. You want to be the first one to, to jump in and grab the boss's ear. The first one to the table wins. It's the same thing in the dating world. You want to be the first one to strike up a conversation. First one to ask for a dance. First one to ask for a date. First one to seize the moment. You snooze, you lose. First one wins. And I could give so many other examples. There's endless examples because we do live in a highly competitive me-first society. Um, to sum it up, I think, as Will Ferrell's character said in a movie that I'm totally not recommending, if you ain't first, you're last. But Jesus says, not so with you. Not so with you. In Jesus' kingdom, it's the last who are going to be first. It starts with Jesus who lowered himself down from heaven to be mocked and despised and killed by human beings. He lowered himself, and we kind of confess this, don't we, in the Apostles' Creed, that he humbles himself, he's crucified, died, and buried. But then he who made himself last gets lifted up to become first. One day he's going to come again in power and glory to judge the living and the dead. We heard in our first reading, every knee on earth will bow. He who made himself last for us will eventually be raised up and glorified as first. And it's the same with Jesus' followers, who are scoffed at by the world for trying to be selfless, who are persecuted by the world for having faith in this unseen God, who are ignored by the world for the things they patiently and quietly do behind the scenes for Jesus and for others. And yet at that last day, we too have been lowered down in our world, who have lowered ourselves down to serve others. We are lifted up with Jesus to be in heaven forever. In Jesus' kingdom, the last shall be first. Whoever wants to become great among you must be your servant. And whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life 
as a ransom for many. So what does this look like in practice? Like how does this practically apply to our life? I think really it comes down to a whole new way of looking at and talking about our time. So this is the last sermon in our series. We've been talking about time ever since mid-August. I think each week of this series, what we've really been trying to do is the same thing. We've been trying to rewire our minds to think about our time in a different way. First, instead of acting like we have unlimited time that's never going to end, we want to understand we do have limited days here on earth and we want to use it wisely and appropriately. Secondly, instead of acting like this time on earth is all we're going to have, we also want to remember that because of Jesus our Savior, we have an eternity of time waiting for us in heaven. Because those two things are true, time on earth is limited and unlimited time in heaven is coming, because those two things are true, it means our time living here on earth that we have is time that is best spent not serving ourselves, but serving others. Following Jesus' example, showing love that is always going to be countercultural, and serving others in a way that's so surprising and so unexpected that they cannot help but do a double take. And in that way, perhaps through our love, people end up learning about Jesus' love and more people end up in heaven one day. We talked about this in Bible study before church. The fruits of faith that God works through our life are also planting seed for faith in other people. And one of the most direct ways that this can happen is by working together and serving together in our spiritual family, our congregation at church. So after church today, we are going to have a volunteer job fair. A bunch of you know this because you're volunteering at the volunteer job fair. But what the purpose of this is, is simply that you can learn what are some various ways that you could use your time and use your skills, not just for yourself, but to serve God and to serve others. So after church, when we have our job fair, I hope that you find something that you can serve at that's going to be a good fit for you. More importantly, I hope that you realize the impact that all of your service has on others. So step back and think it through. There are people in our community, there are many people in our community, who have never been to church or who have not been to church for a long, long time. And often the reason is because they think of churches or they think of Christians as these cold, harsh, negative, judgmental places and people that have nothing there for them. But one day, let's say, hypothetically speaking, a community person who's not been in church forever uh, comes into our building and they decide they're going to walk into Intown Lutheran Church. And when they walk up the street and open the door, they start to feel at ease because one of you is smiling at them as they open the door. And they think, well, maybe this is a place where I could be welcomed. Then they come into our building, and it's clean in here, relatively speaking. It's attractive in here, relatively speaking, because one of you came in on Saturday, and you cleaned it. And then this hypothetical community person comes in and sits in a seat, and they're able to leave their contact information, and we're able to follow up with them because one of you had the job of putting a card and a pen on every seat so that we can keep track of each other and encourage each other. 
Meanwhile, there's other people in our community who are not ready to come to church in person. Maybe they've never been. Maybe they're so uncomfortable with it. But they find us on Facebook and they tune in online. But now they're watching our church service because one of you, instead of sitting in a comfortable chair, is standing over in the supply closet with headphones on, making sure that our service is streamed clear and well onto the Internet. And then the church service starts. And people who, for whatever reason, in whatever way, have come online or in person are now listening to God's word. And in God's word, they hear about our Savior who died on the cross to rescue us and to forgive us for even all of our selfishness and all the selfish ways we use our time and all the ways we only think about ourselves, and all the ways we stomp each other down in this world. The people sit in church, people tune in online, and they hear about free forgiveness flowing from Jesus and the eternal life that is waiting for us through him. And by the work of God's Holy Spirit, their heart warms and stirs and faith grows. There are a lot of cool ways to serve God and others in our world, and plenty of these ways, I think most of these ways, happen actually outside of our church. During the week is when our Christian life is happening. But serving at church is pretty cool because the entire mission of the church is to share Jesus' love with people, right? And so every little way that we volunteer and help, we are contributing to this mission and helping more and more people to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ. So you sit back and think about it, and you say, what could be better? Not only do we get to go to heaven already because of Jesus' perfect life of service for us, not only do we get to say thank you to him with our own whole life of service in this world, but even through our service and the little ways we find to help, God uses us to bring more people into his kingdom, surrounding us with friends and friendships that are going to last for all eternity. And so at the end of this series, we look back and we say kind of against all odds, look at how God has not only redeemed us, but redeemed our time. Every day of it. Every minute of it. What a powerful and awesome God we have. Amen. And now the peace of God which passes all understanding We'll guard and keep your hearts and minds through faith in Christ Jesus, your Savior. Amen.